It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. America was founded on the principle of freedom of religion, and the government is tasked with protecting that freedom. But what if the government begins to try to usurp that position of religious authority? Well, that may be where we are right now, according to Archbishop Charles Chaput. The emeritus head of the Philadelphia Archdiocese penned an op-ed in First Things magazine called The Fire Upon the Earth. And it's a sort of working out of Jesus' words from the Gospel of Luke 12, saying, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. And Archbishop uh, Chaput's op-ed is, in, is indeed a scorching criticism and warning for what's happening in the country today. And, and he writes in part, in recent years, government pressure on religious entities has increased. It involves interfering with the conscience rights of medical providers, private employers, and individual citizens. It includes attacks on the policies, hiring practices, and tax statuses of religious charities, hospitals, and other ministries. These attacks will get worse as a America's religious character weakens. Now, Archbishop Shapiro is also kind of warning that other countries sense our weakened state and are stepping into the fill to fill the vacuum of indecisiveness and decay from within. So, is the root of America's problem its weakening religious character? It's sort of individualized take on morality, I determine right or wrong for myself. Well, let's go to the source. Archbishop Shapu joins me now. Welcome. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for the invitation to visit. I appreciate that. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, you know, I've, I've met you several times at the bishop conferences and various other places, um, and you've, you're now retired from the Archbishop, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Um, but you know, why, what prompted you uh, to write this op-ed? Well, you know, I, I've always been interested in the relationship between church and state, um, and I began to worry about uh, the the principle holding firm, um, maybe as long as 20, 25 years ago, when it seemed to me that there was a growing disrespect for religious opinions. You know, mm-hmm. and we used to refer to our country as a Judeo-Christian country. And I think that's true in terms of the principles upon which our constitution are based and are, are founded. Uh, you know, a lot of those values and principles have been articulated through the Judeo-Christian traditions of the last uh, 2,000 years. And as people grow less religious, and that's certainly true in the United States, you know, all the statistics show that people uh, aren't uh, going to churches and synagogues and temples and shrines as much as as they used to, and in huge numbers less, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. If people aren't interested in religion, there's not much interest in religious freedom because people don't see why it's even necessary or why it's an issue with those of us who, who are religious. But I think the whole world looks to the United States as a, uh, a place to go in terms of religious freedom. That's we, the, the colonizers who came from Europe came here uh, to a large degree for that purpose because of that reason. 
And the Constitution clearly um, makes uh, freedom of religion uh, a central part of what it uh, what it embraces and protects in the Constitution. Yeah. So I, I think that this is a, a an ongoing uh, issue today, and naturally so because people aren't religious and don't understand the importance of such a principle. Yeah. Actually. You know, you call out um, Catholic politicians um, and their hypocrisy. Now, you didn't you don't name names, but, you know, Biden, Pelosi, they they come to mind. Um, and I'm sure we can name a few others. But are they the problem or a symptom of the larger problem? Well, they're certainly a symptom of a larger problem. They there are a lot of Catholics like Pelosi and Biden who don't actually live out in their day to day commitments, some of the basic principles of the Catholic Church. Uh, I, uh, you know, all of us are sinners, actually. Mm-hmm. And we don't live by the, the by what we say we believe. But when it comes to major issues like the protection of human life, um, meaning of marriage and mm-hmm. similar kind of things, it, it seems to me that we have a lot of politicians today who embrace the principles of their political party more firmly than they embrace the principles of their religious faith. And certainly they're free to do that. The church can't impose anything on them, but they have to. They should be honest about it, that they're, they're more of whatever it is, more of a Democrat than they are a Catholic. And, and uh, yeah, it really irritates me when people refer to uh, members of our church who really don't believe what the church uh, believes as devout Catholics. Right, you know, right. to, to be to be to be a devout person of any kind means you're committed, and uh, committed really to the foundational principles of whatever you're devout devoted to, and uh, it is so many uh, politicians are more committed to their party than they are to the church, and yeah. that's true about Republicans as well as Democrats and and other various people. Yeah, I was going to say that there are, there are a lot of people you could on the Republican side you could actually look and say, are you more devoted to Jesus than you are to the Republican platform. Um, and you could you could make that argument there as well. You certainly certainly can. You know, one of the things you talk about in the article is that the state, you know, really should be the protector of the communities like the family, the churches, the fraternal organizations. Um, this is the life of civic, the civic community. And what we're finding is that the now the government, the state, is almost fighting against those entities. I mean, how, how do we protect these institutions from the state? Well, I think there's a natural tendency on the part of the state to take as much uh, control of situations as it can. And uh, historically, what's protected uh, individual citizens and communities from the state doing that is strong, what we've referred to as mediating communities, like the family mediates between the individual person and society. And the church mediates between a community of individuals and the broader society. And, uh, you know, the tendency of the government is to be as powerful as it can, be as influential as it can. So if the family isn't strong and if the mediating communities like church aren't strong, the government just gradually, gradually, gradually takes over. And so uh, it's dangerous for the, for the government to mm-hmm. take over everything. Uh, and we've kind of developed, historically developed a country that, with a constitution that, that intended to make the government weaker than it would be in, in places like a monarchy and uh, places where the, the, you know, the people who came to United to came to what became the United States came from. Yeah. And so they, they gave great influence. That's the reason why they, they wanted a separation of church and state so that the state wouldn't dominate the church. 
Now, uh, uh, quite honestly, people today think that separation of church and state means that state keeps the church from doing things, but that's it's really the, the principle is really the opposite. It's keep the state from telling individual members of a church community and the church community itself that it can't do certain things, that it, it should relegate its beliefs to the church building on Sunday or right. the synagogue on Saturday, and, and, and those principles can't be part of living public life. But in the, in, the, in the foundational documents of our country, the, 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 the state is prevented from doing that. And the state is in this church is given freedom so that it can live a full Christian life or a full Jewish life or whatever in the broader community mm-hmm. uh, and with, in a peaceful kind of way. I think you said that, I want to read the part of the article again, but I think you kind of almost answered it. You said there is no automatic harmony between Christian faith and American democracy. You know, that would be quite surprising to a lot of people who believe there is an incredible symbiosis between Christianity and America's founding fathers and the founding documents. So why do you say there is no, you know, automatic harmony between the Christian faith and American democracy? Well, it's because of democracy. You know, we can vote things in and out, we can even change our constitution. So, if, if let's say a majority of people in the United States decided they didn't want a separation of church and state and wanted the state to control religion, they could vote for that. And if the majority of people voted in that direction, the constitution would be changed. So, what I meant was that by that is is you know, certainly the documents on, on which this country were was founded were infused with Christian and Jewish principles and. And in some sense, philosophy, I guess we could mm-hmm. say, but that can change because uh, because people can vote it vote it out, something something new. But you know, to change the constitution requires a big vote and over a long period of time by a whole lot of people, and uh, that's one of the principles that was uh, put into the constitution so that it would it would be able to be stable and unify people with very different opinions. And if you have a community, a culture that is slowly waning away from religion and religious authority, um, what do you get then? Um, I mean, I guess that's part of the reason why you you can really get this sort of pulling away and and two different paths, really, for religious beliefs and democracy. That's absolutely true. And, you know, the, the marvelous thing about our country, and it is really a marvel because it's the only country like it in, in, the, in the world's in world's history. You know, we were a country that, that wasn't based on anything else. We don't have a common language. We don't have a common religion. We don't have common uh, background of culture, cultural backgrounds. What we have in common is the Constitution, an agreement of ideas and principles that enable us to live together peacefully, even though we are very different from one another. And uh, to, to continue to insist on having that kind of uh, constitutional protection is so important for the peace of our country. But here, you, then now you've got the big state, which was not supposed to be the big state. Um, but you kind of are saying that the Catholic Church in particular, I mean, not Christianity, not all the Protestant denominations, although, you know, 40 different, over thousand, you know, 40,000 different denominations, but the Catholic Church is standing in the way of the government taking over our lives. Is that what you're saying? The Catholic Church has that kind of a power and authority? No, no. I, I, if I said that, I didn't mean to say that. Okay. What I, I, miss, really I was saying that for Catholics, I was, I was giving a talk. This is based on a talk. I gave at a Catholic uh, university in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I originally developed these ideas. 
And I was certainly talking to Catholics about the Catholic Church, and I was saying, for us, our church is a mediating institution between ourselves and the broader society. But that's true for Jews who uh, who are very faithful to the Jewish uh, or Jewish faith religion, and in the synagogue, which is a gathering of people who share the same vision of faith. The, the synagogue then is a mediating institution between those individual Jews and the broader community. So every religious organization. Every Protestant church, if it if, if its members take the principles of the church seriously, mm-hmm. right? Uh, every one of those institutions is a mediating institution in terms of the government. In other words, it, what it really says is the family is the most important institution in our lives as individuals. The second most important institution in our life would be the churches we belong to, and uh, you know the, the the government of the United States is a, fe- a federation of states. So the state government would be the next important. Um, Meeting institution in terms of the federal gathering, and uh, finally the federal government is is the final one. But you know we always we have this principle of subsidiarity, which you can do on the local level. You ought to do mm-hmm. rather than on on the the broader area. And so even even the states we live in, you know, I live in the state of Pennsylvania, is a mediating institution in in relationship to the federal government. You know, and and that's why. I really personally think that the you know the the insistence that we we aren't just a simple democracy, but we're a federation of democracies, is so important for the health of our country. You know, all kinds of practical things like the the you know when the election of president, we don't have a direct election; we have an election of electors from various states. All that is a way of controlling. The behemoth is our national government, mm-hmm. and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as the country grows larger and larger and larger. Well, this is this is the problem I think that we're getting into that people don't recognize this conflict um, that the American government is on path for with the culture of religious people because you can't totally divorce religious beliefs from our laws. I mean, the whole idea, I mean, this is why we're fighting so much over abortion, which is fighting, you know, how we fight over divorce laws. You can't even fight for against divorce laws without some kind of religious understanding of what marriage really is. And then, of course, the idea of gender. I mean, here you've got, I think, down in Texas, they're fighting against um, laws, you know, saying it's basically child abuse to give a, a, a child a bef- under a prepubescent trial, you know, a puberty blockers because they believe they're transgender. I mean, these are all based on, you know, a lot of people are basing them on their religious views. So how much is the um, the American, you know, experiment on a collision course with itself? Well, it always has been. There's always been a lot of conflict in our country. And it's again, it's our constitution and the structure of our country that enables us to have very different ideas even ideas that are opposed to the other ideas, but still live together peacefully. Um, you know, in terms of the issue of abortion, for example, there are a lot of states in the United States who really want to do all they can to minimize the number of abortions. There are other states that want to maximize opportunity for abor- abortion from the time of conception all the way to the day of the birth. Um, and what what's wonderful about our country is that the people who don't believe in abortion, who live in a place where they're the majority, can limit it. And those who do believe in abortion and live in a state where they're the majority can write laws that are very different. 
But what enables us to live together peacefully, in so far as we're able to do that, mm -hmm. is that we have respect for the Constitution and the and the law, the process of law, that enables us to, to dialogue and to fight and to disagree, and yet, in the end, uh, submit ourselves to the to the uh, constitutional process that enables us to live together peacefully. Interesting. You know, you talk about um, this. Is, I thought was very interesting. This is very. Um Oz Guinness kind of thing. You talk about democracy's, democracy's default tyranny. Um, and you quote philosopher Robert Cranick, a political philosopher, Robert Cranick, and he right, says, right. democracy advances the forces of mass culture, which lowers the tone of society. I mean, I mean, I think this is, to my, this is how I translate this, you know, just because something's legal doesn't make it moral, and it doesn't mean it glorifies God. It doesn't mean it's honorable. That's right. You know? That's right. You know. And, you know, a, a democracy, when it comes to counting votes, is really reducing things to the lowest common denominator, the thing that most of us have in common. And that tends to be kind of low rather than high in terms of a value or a virtue. You know, a democracy, if, if just let, let go without any uh, parameters, is a mob. You know, the mob rules. Whoever gets the most votes rules. And we, none of us would think that's a good idea. Uh, somehow there has to be a, a break to just what people vote on. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, I just want to point out that's why our country was structured as it was, because uh, there were there were limits, slow people down, slow democracy down, and make sure that the minority voices are heard and have standing. All those things are written into a marvelous document that's, that has served us so very, very well, and which, you know, a number of people would like to change now. You know, this whole talk about... Uh, uh, you know, increasing the number of uh, justices in the Supreme Court if you don't get what you want. See, if you don't get to what you want, you, mm -hmm. you change things rather than submitting yourself to the process where everybody gets a voice in what is wanted, you know, and uh, and it just keeps one group from trampling on the rights and dignity of the other group. And that's really important in a in a pluralistic society in which we live. Pluralism means that we have di very different ideas yeah, and there are very different uh, points from which we begin the conversation. Even yeah, I mean, fifty-one percent of the people can be wrong. Um, they can be. Yeah, they often are. Yeah. Um, let's take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We're talking with uh, um, Archbishop Emeritus Charles Chaput of Philadelphia. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. And we are back with Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia. Emeritus, you have retired. You're like two years from retirement, which means you're, what, about 77? Is that, uh, is that the I age? Am, I am. 77, that's, we retire at the age of 75. We're required to submit our, our letter of resignation at that time, and I did. I turned 75 in September, and the Pope accepted my resignation in, uh, I found out in January, but the, the actual date for it was February. So it takes a little while, you know, for the process to go through. It doesn't happen the next day. He, does, he doesn't have so, to accept it, right? He doesn't have to, be, you know, you can actually no, keep going if you want. Actually, the cardinals, you know, there was, there's a few of the bishops in the United States who are cardinals, uh, have the right to vote for the pope until they're 80. Mm -hmm. And so the pope generally lets them stay in office as a local bishop um, longer than 75, sometimes all the way to 80, sometimes it's 77. 
78. It, of course, depends on the health and mental acuity of the person who's involved. <laughs> and some bishops actually ask to retire earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, don't, I think the Pope generally tries to accommodate those uh, those requests as well. And I remember when you became the Archbishop of uh, Philadelphia, your predecessor actually was the Cardinal, and most of us were expecting you to become a Cardinal as well, because the Archdiocese of Philadelphia certainly is large enough, you know, to have that sort of um, person. Yeah, at, we, at, we, we, we had Cardinals for many, many years. Why, why not you? Why not you? I mean, I think, I mean, I, I maybe I don't want to stir up a, you know, a bee's nest here, no, but why no, not you? you can, you can visit and say and ask anyone. Well, I think there's two reasons why not me. Uh, the one which is more objective is that Pope Francis thought that the American church had too many cardinals considering the proportion of Catholics in the church. You know, we, we certainly did. I think we probably had either the second or third most number of cardinals of any country. And, you know, we're relatively small in terms of the Catholic population. I think we're very vibrant part of the Catholic Church, but we're not that large a part. So that was one reason. And the Pope wanted the Cardinals to come from a more diverse region mm-hmm. and not just the traditional places. Or There are, for example, the, the Archbishop of uh, Paris is not a Cardinal. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are many other places, Venice and Italy, many places where they had Cardinals before, they don't have them now. But the second reason, and it's more personal, is that the Pope uh, didn't like my mentality and my point of view. I was actually going to say, I thought that was the the, the bigger reason, that he just didn't well, it, like it, it, your kind of conservative well, kind well, of views on a lot of stuff. I think that's probably, I don't know if it's a bigger reason, but it's certainly an equal reason. And it may be that may have been the precipitating reason. I don't know that. He didn't tell me. He's always been very kind to me personally, and I've known him for a lot of years. But as a matter of fact, we don't agree on a number of things. And I think he was looking for a different kind of leadership in the United States and what, what I would provide. What, so, uh, what, what you know, don't I'm not, you agree? I'm not, ashamed of, I'm not ashamed of that. It's just a reality. And mm-hmm. I'm happy to be faithful to what I believe, and I'm not going to change that in order to please anybody, actually, except the Lord. I hope I would always please him. What did you not agree on, you and Pope Francis? Uh, you'd have to ask him that. Because you know, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, because he, he hasn't told me. Although, the, you know, the, someone leaked uh, a conversation he had with the nuncio here in the United States that uh, he didn't want bishops who thought like I did. And he, I, he, I named was, it, he named you personally? He named you personally? He did. He did. Uh, Cardinal, uh, Archbishop Vigano, of, of, you probably know who he is, mm-hmm, because he was sure. quite, quite famous, said that uh, he, the Pope told him not to appoint uh, bishops like me. So, um, you know, again, what, what would that mean? I, I would... I don't know what it means. I think it, uh, I just really don't know what it means. I mean, there would be a lot of uh, specific things that we would disagree with. I think that the, the most public thing would be, I would be very different from the Pope in terms of my view of China and the relationship mm-hmm. of the Catholic hierarchy in China to, to the communist regime there. I think that uh, China is being poorly served by the church today, the international reality of the church. And I feel very badly about that because I think that uh, a lot of people who suffered persecution for many, many years have been let down by the church changing its position on our relationship with the Chinese government. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's very interesting. Uh, Very interesting. Well, you know what, since we're speaking about the Pope, uh, a story. Can I I say this? One thing this points out is you can have 
Uh, the Pope has never asked me to leave the Catholic Church. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> well, at least that. <laughs> or, any, or anything like that. So the, the church isn't this monolith that everybody thinks it is, where everybody has the same opinion. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a ebb and flow of different ideas in the course of t- time. Um, I remember when I was a, a, a young uh, bishop, the uh, Bishop of Baltimore was much more liberal than Pope John Paul II. And he didn't become a cardinal. Everybody commented on that. Mm-hmm. And people didn't think that was a bad idea who were conservative because they, they wanted people who were cardinals who were voting for the next pope to think like the John Paul II. So the fact that, you know, we have a, a, a pope who's perceived as more liberal on many issues than uh, John Paul, Pope John Paul II or Pope Benedict means that when he's making decisions about who should be the leaders of a local church in the United States, he would follow his point of view. And mm-hmm. we all have to respect that. And, and I'm, I'm certainly not hurt by the fact that I'm not a cardinal. Um, once, when I was appointed to be the Archbishop of Philadelphia, like everybody else, I thought that was probably going to happen historically. But I, I haven't been offended by it, quite honestly. And uh, I hope my life here has been fruitful for the people. And, and, when I, and as I approach death, you know, I'm getting old, so everybody dies. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'll be very happy to go before the throne of God and say that I was, I would try to be faithful to what I really believed in, and, and I wasn't changing my position in order to please anybody else. Interesting. Not even the Pope. Um, Not even the Pope. My, my own, my pope, own read the pope on is this. Just a bishop, you know? Right, exactly. The bishop, bishop. bishop of Rome. And, he's, he's a bishop of Rome, and successor of St. Peter, so he has a certain a different role, and we owe him both love and respect, and I do that. But doesn't mean we, we owe him agreement when we don't agree, right? All right. Well, he's he's commented on the American church has been too cozy, at least the conservative end has been too cozy with um, the political forces, uh, particularly the GOP. Um, and for, he just doesn't like that. He, he thinks we're, he, he thinks the GOP is too cozy and too much made of evangelicals. I don't think it's a Protestant thing. I think it's just he he doesn't understand how to separate. He doesn't he doesn't. I think he looks at evangelicals. He, he doesn't. He doesn't know the American church very well, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know the American evangelical movement, and he has advisors that are giving him bad advice on the relationship between uh, the church, the Roman Catholic Church in the United States and the evangelical community. Our union is over gospel principles and not over the Republican Party. Right. You know, it's, uh, and I think that evangelicals tend to be a bit more political than, than uh Roman Catholics are in terms of uh, identifying with one political party. But uh, the unity that we have with each other is based on what Jesus teaches and not on that Republican label. But also, I think my experience between Catholics and Protestants, because I am still I'm a Protestant and my, my husband is Greek Orthodox, but my experience has been the evangelicals do more in the apologetics realm than most Catholics. Um, and even uh, Greek Orthodox. In fact, I was really blown away by one Greek Orthodox who preached down in Florida named um, Nicholas Lowe, who sounded more like an evangelical in his preaching style and his teaching style. And I, I, I told, this is kind of where we're going, um, I think. But that's my experience with Catholics, that they sort of are Catholics by birth and they are Catholics by rote um, ritual. Um, but they don't know Jesus Christ. Um, what's your well, take? They don't. They don't know their Catholic faith. I agree with you. I think it's true about most Catholics and most Protestants. 
they don't really know their faith and they're really not committed to Jesus Christ, although they, they're culturally Christian. You know, I think that's, yeah. uh, that's truer about the Catholic Church now than it was uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, the, the evangelicals go to church more faithfully than the Roman Catholics do percentage-wise. Now, we used to brag that, you know, all of our people went to Mass on Sunday. And when I was a kid, that was true, about 75% of the Catholics went to Mass on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we always bragged that we went so much more than Protestants, and, and we did. But now, I think it's, <laughs> it's 18 to 20, 18 to 20% of people who are who identify as Roman Catholics who actually go to church on Sunday, which means they aren't very committed, actually. And the, the percentage of evangelicals who go to church on Sunday is much higher I shouldn't say much higher, at least some higher. Yeah, it actually is much higher. I don't know what the numbers are, but I do know that they're much higher. Yeah, and I would guess it was in the 30 or 40 percent rather than 75 percent, though. Yeah. Um, And and that's true. And I'm I'm happy they do. I'd rather, if I had children, I'd rather they be good uh, evangelicals than bad Catholics. You know, but I'd rather them be good Catholics, of course, who believe what the Catholic Church believes in. And not just believe it, but live it. And that's really the test of one's faith is what one does, not just what one says. You know, uh, back to your article really quickly, because I wanted to because we, I want to talk about solutions too. this is not just about bashing um, the, you know, the, the Catholic Church or Catholics or the government. But you talk about in the article, the right to pursue one's happiness, of course, which is laid out in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The right to pursue one's happiness does not include a right to excuse or ignore evil in ourselves or anyone else. When we divorce our politics from a grounding in virtue and truth, we transform our country from a living moral organism into a golem of legal machinery without a soul. That to me really is quite powerful because it really puts the onus on ourselves because the political system is designed to point the finger at somebody else. But the religious, at least Christianity, is designed to point the finger at yourself, to say, how can I make a difference? I mean, do you agree you're with right. that? You're absolutely right. I agree with you. Actually, the heart of my, my talk, and it's really, I hope, the heart of all the talks that I give is an invitation to personal conversion or change. And the, the center of this talk was my making a distinction, I'm sure you saw it, between happiness and comfort. Right. And most Americans actually identify happiness with comfort. You know, the things we think will make us happy are things that make us comfortable. A new car, a new home, new clothes, a great meal, something, some alcohol to drink. These are all things that we, we seek. We think it'll lead to happiness. But what we're really doing is looking for things that make us more comfortable. Um, you know, even the way we look at vacation is very interesting in the United States. Uh, the young people today, especially, they work so they can take a vacation. And in the beginning, it was the other way around. We took vacation so we could work better, you know, <laughs> and take care of our families better. So it wasn't, the goal wasn't a vacation. The goal was being prepared to do to take care of our responsibilities in a better kind of way and again if, if you if you if you want to, to pursue the truth and live by the principles of jesus and he he decided he told us that it was a narrow way and a difficult way and that if we're going to fall and we have to take up our cross this this is jesus invites us to a life of self-giving or self-sacrifice which isn't comfortable you know oh absolutely but that's what that's what really makes us happy in the in the long run. If we, if we seek comfort, 
we're not going to be very, we're going to be shallow. We're going to be part of that democratic population, the lowest denominator <laughs> that I talked about before. You know, and, and, and the, the, the heart of Jesus' teaching in terms of who we are is that we should learn to give ourselves away to God and to other people. And that's those right relationships of giving ourselves away is what leads to true happiness. Yeah. Not comfort. You actually so have to learn that. You actually give a very simple answer when you talk about when young people come to you and say, how can I change the world? Because, you know, we want to go out and change the world. I'm not young. I'm just saying they want to go out and change the world. Every every generation decides, oh, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make it a better place. And your answer was, says, I tell them to love each other, get married, stay faithful to one another, have lots of children and raise those children to be more um, to be men and women of Christian character. Faith is a seed. It doesn't flower overnight. Um, I Personally, I think that's a really great piece of advice, and it's so hard to do in today's culture, isn't it? Right, and it's the only thing that leads us to happiness, quite honestly. You know, I think people theoretically say family is the source of all happiness, but we don't actually put our energy in that direction. And, uh, to, you know, people who come out of college today put, put off family, put off having children in order to have success, in order to have money so they can be comfortable, you know. <laughs> And all of that, well, it, well, it, it ends up a very lonely life, isolated from others later on, because you haven't given yourself to what's really important, which is forget yourself and to live for your spouse and to live for your children. And, of course, all fundamentally to, to live for God, because that's how God made us. God, God is self-giving, and he wants those of us who are his creatures to be like him in the way we think and act, which means we become, we should become self-giving people and that's where we find true happiness not in comfort you know i want to i want to talk about a little little bit about uh, philadelphia today too because today we're recording this on the day of the philadelphia primary and um there is a lot of rubber beats the road right going going on in philadelphia with the rising crime um this is when you know i, I never i always believe that god's word has a direct influence on um how you perceive the world if you know it or if you don't know it and so crime to me is one of those things that is an outpouring of a community's real faith, um, where they're putting their real faith. Um, but speak on this crime in Philadelphia, like 90 women and girls have been shot since the beginning of the year in Philly. Um, and just since last Friday, two pregnant women were shot. Um, what's going on in Philadelphia? Well, it's, it's like many very large uh, urban areas in our country. There's a lot of violence, a lot of gun violence, and uh, that, that's principally in the interior parts of our city. Um, and it's borne um, more heavily by minority uh, members, members of our community who are ethnic minorities or racial minorities than by the broader uh, population. And it's, it's also very sad. And uh, I, I think we all probably would agree that the reason for this is the diminishment of uh, a family and the support mm -hmm. of our families. So, so many people in, in uh, poor communities come from um, families that are broken in some ways or never really existed in the f fullest understanding of what it means to be a family. And the, the answer to those things isn't government programs because government programs haven't helped, you know. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm in, by the way, I'm in favor of government programs that ease the, the pain 
that comes with poverty and with uh, violence. I think that's very, very important. But it's never a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem really are the kind of things you talked about earlier, where we have to find a way of re-strengthening family life, because it's, it's the family that we know that we're loved and cared for. Um, and that's the difference between a stable person and an unstable person is knowing that they're loved and cared for. And to know that from the very beginning and to have a safe family to which we're born and where we're cared for and which has uh, a stable income so that we have a stable home and we have food and all those kind of things are important for personal comfort, uh, stability, not comfort, but stability. That's also very, very important. So I, yeah. I think the answer to our problems is really is really family. And we have to find a way of uh, reinforcing that. Yeah. Um, your your article is see that I don't understand. Well, you know, one last thing we have because I have to bring this up about the Pope and tequila. I mean, I, I just I really have to bring it up. AP story out today, and it, you know, because the Pope is having um, he had some um, I guess knee surgery. He's now uh, in a wheelchair, and he's came physical therapy to help heal his uh, his bad knee. Um, and he he said in a recent audience, he quipped that what he really needed for the pain is a shot of tequila. Now, that's a that's a man after my own heart right there. What do, what do you say? About, despite of what I, he said I, about you. <laughs> well, I, he has a certain right to say anything he wants to say about me, and I, I like the Pope. I think that uh, him saying that is one of the reasons why he is uh, loved and uh, admired by so many people in the world, even those who are, who are not members of our church, because he's very human, and this is the kind of thing that most of us would say to our friends. And, he, he doesn't uh, carry himself with a kind of formal formality or external dignity that popes have traditionally done in, in, <laughs> in, in our lived experience. So I think that's part of his charm. And uh, I think all of us can say that at the end of a very difficult day that what I really need is a drink. And uh, <laughs> even if we don't drink, we say things like that. It's very, very funny, but also very true, very human. Well, Archbishop uh, Charles Chaput, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And again, the article you wrote is called Fire Upon the Earth. It's in First Things um, magazine. Um, if you want to read the article um, in its entirety, it's a very, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a very long um, expose. It's just very um, readable. Um, we haven't discussed all parts of it, but I would encourage people to read it because there are some really wonderful um really wonderful things that you've said about the society and what we need and what we don't need. Um, so thank you so much um, uh, for being on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I, I've always admired your work. So keep at it. Don't lose heart. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.